If it's happening now, we're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Will Weber is on the board. Will Erskine booking the guests. In the newsroom, Dave Woodard. The provincial premiers have been asking for a meeting with the Prime Minister on healthcare for three years. The PM finally granted their wish today. Here's hoping any action has been worth the agonizing wait. Here's Scott Thompson. You know, I thought maybe the Hank Jr. or sorry, Hank Sr. and uh, Cheating Heart were a little too slow to kick the song uh, in the day off, and such is the first song. But you know, considering the dance that's going on, little two-step around healthcare. Here we go, right now. There's the premiers, do si do with each other. Oh, now the prime minister is stepping in, and the health minister too. Around and around they go. All right, Uh, why Hank? Well, of course, Hank is number 30 on Rolling Stone's top 200 greatest singers of all time. No Celine Dion, but we got the Hank Sr. There you go, 1952. And I think we might have a different one to play each hour. We're so excited, so excited about the Hank Jr. So, yeah, the big uh, news today, obviously, uh, first of all, uh, Turkey, Syria, what's going on there? My goodness, the images are just absolutely horrific as uh, they try to struggle with the devastating uh, earthquake. Uh, $10 million from Canada sent there, and they are certainly going to need all the help that uh, that they can get. Uh, closer to home, it's the big day. It's And, you know, I remember during the height of the global pandemic uh certainly the first wave and and premier horgan then premier horgan ndp uh premier for uh british columbia said you know we got a broken system here and uh we need to gather everybody together and fix it and he was the first one to rally all the premiers together and start banging on the door and it's been two and a half three years that finally uh you know we're admitting there's a problem and let's be honest Many weren't even admitting there was a problem till a few months ago. Uh, then all of a sudden there was chats of reform and accountability and all sorts of things, and 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 we got serious about it. Uh, but boy, oh boy, it's taken a lot to get us there. And honestly, you know what got us there? You people just absolutely ticked off about our you know much glorified healthcare system that is failing Canadians at at every step of the way. And this has nothing to do with the great healthcare workers, doctors, nurses, what have you. Uh, this is just a model that is absolutely broken. And finally, finally, everybody realizes that uh, that something needs to be done. There needs to be more flexibility, more and more saying, including the province, sorry, the prime minister and the uh, health minister, that this is a broken system. It needs to be reformed. Uh, and and they're going to start, they're talking about a 10-year deal and where that goes. And, you know, my God, 10-year deal, so what? What's the shelf life of Justin Trudeau now? This is going to be passed on to the next government. And, you know, we've already wasted three years, and he was prime minister five years before that. So, um, you know, on the way out the door, it's kind of late, but I guess better late than never. Uh, let's play you a clip from Global News' Tina Trajani on the healthcare meetings, uh, which are hopefully, well, <laughs> I guess they're not going to come to a peak, but at least a first step. 
Prime Minister Justin Trudeau is set to present a new health care funding deal to Canada's premiers today, and Global News has confirmed with senior federal government sources this is going to be a 10-year agreement broken down into two parts. Yes, there will be more money funneled via the Canada Health Transfer, but each province can also cut a separate deal to have money diverted to suit their particular health care needs with conditions. That includes the sharing of data with the goal of improving outcomes. The money also needs to be spent in the public system. Now, it's not clear yet how much the federal government is proposing, but billions are reportedly on the table. Premiers have been pushing for the government to cover 35% of health care costs from the current 22%. The Prime Minister has made it clear nothing is going to be signed today, but Premier Doug Ford is looking to hammer something out fairly soon. We can't keep dragging this on when uh, we're all feeling pressure in, in health care. Tina Trajani, Global News. Yeah, I, I think it's got to the point where Canadians um, just they want they want results. They they're tired of being the, uh, this being passed, uh, you know, down the uh, down the field and, and 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 nobody taking responsibility of any of any way. And it's really just people listening to what the healthcare workers have had to say that they realize that the system is collapsing as they may be trying to get in to get something done and it's just stand in line it forms to the right um and again it's you know despite some screaming uh private versus public i like i honestly don't think that's the debate here and i and i think if you're screaming that argument you're a few decades uh, too late because you know obviously um everybody really realizes this is broken and needs to be addressed. And it's a combination of both private and public that will get it there. And this all has to fit within the Canada Health Act. You know, uh, the NDP are screaming that, you know, bah, 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 private. Well, you know, the Canada Health Act is the law. It is the law of the land. And if you don't abide by it, you don't get anything. So, you know, there's a lot of fear mongering going on and a lot of people who want to benefit from having things stay the way they are and just keep pumping more money and more doctors and more nurses into a system that isn't working. That's not the solution. And the great thing is, I think Canadians are finally realizing that and starting to separate the BS from the politics. Um, I want to pl- uh, also play you a clip from uh, Kath- uh, Kathleen Ward and uh, from Global News. And this is on how we are feeling in regard to our healthcare system, it's changed. According to exclusive Ipsos polling for Global News, 60% of Canadians view the quality of healthcare as good, but that's down from 72% during the height of the pandemic in 2020. Only 18% of respondents expect the system to improve in Canada. As for what's to blame for the state of healthcare, 72% cite staffing shortages, followed by a lack of federal funding at 51% and inefficient spending at 48%. Daryl Bricker, CEO of Ipsos polling, says people are looking for answers. The level of concern has become more personal. It's less about the future. It's more about the present. And people are looking for a plan. Uh, for how this healthcare system is going to evolve, particularly in the short term. Catherine Ward, Global News. There you have it. Uh, and the premiers and the uh, prime minister are working on that this afternoon. I don't think anything will be cast in stone today. But again, here's hoping it is at least a first step in the right direction. Uh, let's bring in Alyssa Freeman, PR and pop culture expert. And uh, we'll see what we end up talking about because there's always so much. Uh, Alyssa, thank you for taking the time. Hope you're doing well. Yes, thank you, Scott, for having me on. All right, we're going to talk about food prices and Loblaws in a sec if we get to it. But first, your thoughts on the big meeting today. This is like two and a half, three years in the making uh, of the uh, 
premiers and the prime minister finally getting together. It seems there has been a monumental shift in Canadians' feelings about health care. Uh, and, and, you know, the once illustrious, uh, private, or sorry, public system that we all thought was a lot better than what it is, uh, we're seeing the holes in it and people want it fixed. Are we at a turning point here, do you think? A hundred percent we're at a turning point. And I think that even the premiers themselves are softening their stances. So whereas they were very gung-ho as to numbers and immediate increases, you know, right away they're looking at, well, you know what? I think what the prime minister is offering is pretty generous. I think that we are going to be in big trouble back in our own home provinces if we don't say yes to this, because Canadians look at this and think, you know what? This is a lot of money. And if we say no, what is it going to look like back home? So when you're looking at a $200 billion injection over 10 years, the optics of that is that the federal government has, you know, put their money where their mouth is. The rubber hits the road. Use any generalization or cliche that you want. But for them to say no at this point uh, is do not pass go and do not collect $200 billion. I think what we've all realized, too, is that if you keep shoveling more money into the typical system, whether it's hiring more workers, more this, more that, we're not going to get any farther ahead in the long run. And I think it's, it's you know, I, I think the provinces are looking for some sort of reform. And, you know, obviously, Canada Health Act, uh, the, uh, the left, um, politics and such, um, there has been a substantial uh, kickback to that. Now, not so much, because in order to, you either reform basically or you put a lot more money into the system. Like, you keep shoveling more money into the system. So, it's either you reform or you, you keep doing the old and, and hope for better results. I mean, has it come to that, really? Well, I think that, you know, there's a number of things here at play. So number one, we're talking about money. And we always said, you know, the Canadian Medical Association said it's not always only money that's going to solve this. You know, there has to be some other systemic issues that need to be solved, too. So on the one thing, pan-Canadian licensure, you know, don't make it so hard for doctors to be able to practice yeah. in other provinces or underserved areas that may be just across the border for your from your province. Um, you know, the other things, too, are things that, you know, provinces have always either either cut back or they just haven't increased uh, in years and years. So, for example, the number of places in medical schools, you know, they're based on the funding that you get. And that's why the medical school um, placements are finite. So if you're getting more money, you can obviously open that up to stop these shortages, such as in family physicians that we're seeing. But Scott, I think one of the most important things is, is something that the provinces had balked at for weeks and weeks, even back in, um, uh, December, when the uh, premiers met with uh, Duclos, the federal health minister, and they were saying, no, 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 we want it with no strings attached. Well, suddenly, quote unquote, in order to access the money through the bilateral agreements, provinces and territories will have to report on how the money will be spent and how the results will be measured. And this is something that they went kicking and screaming to the mats that they were not going to do. And then suddenly they now they are going to do it because they know that Canadians know, as Ontarians know, and other people in other provinces know, that you're not going to pull the wool over our eyes by taking all this money and that when we don't see change, then what? So now I think that's an, being I, I, held to the fire. 
I think that's an entire red herring, Alyssa. I really do. I think that, again, if you let us reform the system is what the premiers are saying. And you, because, I mean, as soon as uh, accountability and reforms, that's what the prime minister want. Doug Ford said, yep, okay. And then the next day announced all this whole suite of things that were going to change. And uh, amazingly enough, there hasn't been a lot of backlash other from those, other than those on the left, extreme left, and those that are benefiting from putting more money into the same old broken system. You know, you're talking about letting doctors participate between provinces. You're talking about letting doctors come in with international whatever. I mean, that's all union and membership and organization related. And that's the sort of stuff that's got to stop. Well, is it union related? I'm not sure where you're, where I'm getting the union. There's no doctor's union, Scott. Um, I mean, there are, I think with nurses, but there is no doctor's union. There are certain things that you can do on a federal level and there are certain things that you can certainly do on a provincial level. Like the other week when, um, Doug Ford said, well, we're going to let private clinics take over some of those elective surgeries, but with your OHIP card. You know, that is an interprovincial reform. So yeah, there are lots of levels where you have to make systemic change. But the other big one is also, you know, something, you know, the buzzword is health human resources, which is sort of doing account what people are doing in the healthcare system within your province. Are they more, are they overserved in one area? Are they underserved in another area? Honestly, Scott, we don't know that right now. And we know that because, you know, Premier Doug Ford often says, well, you know what, we're going to have 14,000 nurses into the system soon. Well, first, they all got to graduate, number one. And number two, where are they going to go? So I think the hope is, Scott, and I am optimistic that the that the premiers are going to do the, these type of things that uh, Canadians and Ontarians want. And how will we know? We'll know because there will be no more rolling um, ER closures. The elective surgeries will start to move up on the Let list. me say this, Alyssa. It seems, that, it seems that you have been laying, you are laying the blame of decades of the failing healthcare system on the provinces. And I'm sorry, I'm just not willing to accept that. I don't think that's the case. I think their hands are tied if they want to reform, they're not allowed. And all of a sudden, it's either give us the money and we'll run it your way or let us reform. And we're seeing a balance between the two. I think that's what's happening. And I don't think people are as... Uh, are as uh, struck or, or, or awestruck about having a public system versus private as everybody thought they were. They just want results. And clearly the system, well, the way it works, doesn't, you know, even if you're shoveling more money into it, it's still an, an inefficient system. Yeah, but, you know, Scott, healthcare is, is under the provincial jurisdiction. So yeah. what you're saying is, you know, let the Fed, and I can't believe it, you know, you, you of all people, I don't think would want this, you know, sort of the overlord of the federal government to say, you know, do this, do that, do this. What they're asking for is, yeah, we want you to account for the money because the feds have been giving money all across the country to all different provinces, not just Ontario. But you know what? We as Ontarians are not seeing the benefits of that. So I agree with you that we're saying, you know, are let's they in the any province? Province? Like, like, is there, is there, is there a province that's done this right? I mean, you know, I, I don't understand. No, there's not a province that has done this right, but I don't think that any government, listen, to reform healthcare, you need to have a lot of courage in your government to do that because in, in essence, you're going to have to take on dismantling it and building it back up. And honestly, no province has ever wanted to do that. No federal government has ever wanted to do that. And, you know, what we're, when we're talking about if you dismantle healthcare and you don't get back into the next, you know, in the next election, well, then what? So a lot of this has taken courage from 
the premiers and from the federal government to say, okay, now we're going to draw a line in the sand. Because yes, Scott, you're right. Listen, remember when the Romano report came out? We were young people at that time. So that that report really, it's, its results have never, ever changed. So now they're taking it out, they're dusting it off, and all those things that we know that we needed, that we know that should have happened decades ago, at least we're starting somewhere. I'll agree with that. Alyssa Freeman, PR and pop culture expert. Always fun. Alyssa, thanks for the time. Be well. Ooh, that was a little combative, but I liked it, Scott. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. All right, lots to talk uh, in regard to politics. Let's bring in uh, Jean-Bierre Tellier, professor, School of Political Studies, University of Ottawa, and is with us now. Jean-Bierre, thanks for the time. Hope you're doing well. I'm doing well. Thank you very much, Scott. So uh, your thoughts on where we are today before we uh, dig into some of the other stuff, but obviously today, health care, the premier's meeting with the prime minister. This has been two and a half, three years in the making. Uh, are, are, are we expecting too much out of this or do you see a turning point here in Canadian health care? I'm not sure about the turning point, but finally we have a number on the table. So we were a lot discussing that for many weeks or months. And now finally it will be, we have this number of about $200 billion of fundings for the healthcare transfer. Um, I'm still not sure if that will be sufficient. Uh, we're going to have to dig a bit more into the numbers. But what I could see uh, for the moment is that the provinces were asking $28 billion more per year. And it seems that the offer of the government is about 17 billion dollars per year so it's not what the provinces were wanting uh, but nonetheless it's it's better than nothing and it's still a substantial number so um we will see some news conference from the premier uh, later on today so we'll have a better understanding of their own view how they see that and if they are pleased with the offer or not and and see where the federal government is going after that uh, where do reforms fit into all of this discussion, uh, Javier? Because, uh, you know, we've got the NDP saying, um, you know, uh, you don't want to take this into a private U.S. style system. We need more money to hire more nurses, more doctors, more money into the old system. Uh, obviously, we're governed under the Canada Health Act, you know, about how much we can reform and can't reform. Um, what about the discussions regarding reform and how far certain provinces are going to take? It. That still has to be all within the umbrella of the Health Act anyway, doesn't it? Are we going to see drastic change there? Uh, not, not in the short term, I would say, because if you have to change a Canada Health Act, uh, you need the support. If you are the Liberal, you need the support of the NDP and they won't agree to that. So in, in the short run, uh, I don't think there will see any changes. We will see any changes. However, uh, yes, probably, uh, provinces will be able to experiment a few things. So Doug Ford is saying, well, yes, I want to have some private uh, services into the picture. Now it won't be, uh, paid directly by, by a patient. It's going to be paid by the province uh, on behalf of the patients. Uh, in Quebec, they are talking about building two, uh, they call it mini hospital that are private hospital, but funded by the, by the province. And so we see some new initiative that are discussed. Now, uh, will other provinces to follow suit? Will the federal government look at that and see value, see merit in that? And then most, uh, and I think the most important point is to, will citizen, Canadian citizen agree with that? Because, uh, 
uh, a private uh, healthcare system, a, pr a public healthcare system, sorry, is, is kind of the pride of Canada or used to be the pride of Canada. So is it still the case? Uh, we'll see. But I don't, I haven't seen, I, I like your question. I haven't seen this willingness to, to think about reform. It's more in the uh, expectative in the sense that let's see what others uh, will think about and we'll see if it delivers what we want and, and, and act uh, after that. So uh, it's not a big day as a transformative day in the healthcare system, I would say today. What about public opinion and and the public's opinion towards healthcare? Because as you said, we were quite proud of our Canadian healthcare system. We would often brag that it was way better than the United States. And then, of course, the global pandemic hits and we realize that our healthcare workers are just pushed to beyond uh, limit. It's certainly not the workers. It's a it's a template issue. It's a it's a it's a system issue. It now seems the public is 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 not as committed. Uh, they want results more than anything. Yes. I guess is, is yes. where we're going. They they want to see results here. Has that changed? Public opinion of our system changed. I think so. And uh, I think you have pointed it to the right uh, changes that we we don't care how it is done. We want to see things changing. And so we see all the problems and almost all of us are exposed to those, pro to those problems. And it doesn't matter who pays, who runs the, the, the system. Uh, we want to find solution. And if the public sector is not able to bring those solutions, uh, I think that more and more Canadians are willing to look elsewhere. Uh, now, I think part of the responsibility lies in the public system itself in the sense that uh, I don't see a lot of conversation um, in, in hospital and a health manager about how to improve the system and maybe the conversation should start there. Uh, is it because we're failing currently that we have automatically to turn to the private sector? Uh, the private sector also has its own issue. Uh, first of all, it will select what it, want to, what it wants to cover. It's there to do profits and so not everything is profitable. Profitable. And so, uh, but, but the end is that we haven't had that, this kind of discussion. So yes, Canadian, I think I see a change of mood, mode, mood. Um, uh, the, the conversation start to, to shift. And, um, I'm not sure that this idea of we don't touch at the public aspect of the healthcare system is, is no longer there in the sense that yes, I uh, probably many Canadians are thinking, well, let's try to innovate to try to get something from that. So do you mean, and, and I agree with that 100%. I mean, you know, the experts I've talked to, the, you know, the, the, the success, the, the solution is a combination. It's somewhere in the middle of all of this. But it seems whenever we've had to try to have this discussion, it's either, it's an extreme discussion. It's either it's all public or it's all private and there's no compromise in the middle. Are we, is that argument finally losing steam? And, you know, and, you know, we had Jugmeet Singh, leader of the NDP on the other day, and he's, you know, he, he still keeps basically saying the same thing. And I'm thinking, uh, are Canadians not figuring that out? I mean, is that argument losing steam, public versus private? It's this way or that way? Yes, and I don't think that's where the debate should be. So yes, I understand the same thing as you do. And so yes, is it privatization or making it public? Uh, but I think that the main case to be made is that it's about centralization and decentralization. And so mm. we think that the system is too much centralized. Manager are out of touch with the needs that are uh, presented uh, in the field uh, by, by people. And so we don't develop, we don't reform, we don't change the system to be adapted 
adapted to those new needs. And some of the new needs are the aging of the population. So uh, there's a desire from many to have services that are changed, uh, they, that they could have services at their own house, for instance, or stay longer where they are living. They don't want to go into long-term uh, residency. And so um, the, the, this tension about centralization and decentralization, we should think about it. In Ontario, it was kind of a, going to, towards the decentralization, but with Doug Ford, he has centralized a bit more the system. And now we have the federal government that wants to have a say, uh, an, an even bigger part to play. And so we're going even big, bigger into the centralization. So I would like us to think about who should do what and maybe not even thinking about, well, it's the federal responsibility or the province responsibility, but more, is it the hospital responsibility, the community responsibility, and looking at those uh, aspects and thinking to put the patient first and foremost into mm. the system, not saying, well, we have to pay for hospital, doctors, nurses, but think we have to pay for services for patient, which Ontario is doing a bit better than other provinces, I would say, especially if we compare with Quebec, for instance. Jean-Vierre Tellier with us, Professor, School of Political Studies, University of Ottawa. Big meeting between the Premiers and the Prime Minister on the future of Canadian health care. Jean-Vierre, fascinating discussion. Thanks for the time. Be well. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. All right. Um, you know, I remember um, and over the years on uh, planning your financial future Saturday mornings uh, here on CHML, talking about low interest rates and how long are they going to last? That was like 20 years ago. And then I guess after about five or 10 years, people were, oh, I guess this is the new norm. And now... Uh, um, as really before the pandemic, things were starting to go up. Obviously, pandemic shut everything down and a new way of life, so to speak. And now, obviously, wherever we are, where we're seeing uh, high costs, inflation, interest rates going up, people having a hard time making ends meet. And if you're at the retirement age of your uh, life or planning for it in the latter stages or such, um, you know, how do you live off uh, your retirement savings when in fact prices are going up the way that they are. Some people talking that they can't afford to retire. Let's bring in Jay Llewellyn, Senior Financial Consultant with Fox Group, IG Private Wealth Management. And of course, you can hear on Saturday mornings, Planning Your Financial Future with Don Fox and is with us now. Jay, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. I'm good. Thanks. Uh, thanks for having me, Scott. So I, 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 you know, I completely get this because, you know, even I'm working still and I'm finding it impossible just to get by in, in the cost of everything going up. I can imagine what it's like for those that are on a fixed income. How much of a concern is this for those that are retired? Yeah, the interest rates has been probably the biggest thing that's hit people the hardest with this. The recent rise in interest rates over the last year, we've gone from prime rate at 2.7% up to 6.7%. So a 4% increase over the last year. And this has really put a crunch on a number of things. One being, uh, if you've got a mortgage payment, you know, the average, the average mortgage in Canada or in, in Ontario right now is around $650,000. And that, that little jump or not little jump, but that big jump from two to two to 6.7% is about $1,500 a month in payments. Mm. So just imagine if you were on a, a tight budget as it was, and now you've got to come up with another $1,500 or almost 
uh, $18,000 a year after tax to pay down this mortgage. So yeah, definitely feeling the pinch. And that also goes, that translates over to rentals too. Um, people that are renting, we've seen this, the price of rentals go up because people that own these rentals often have mortgages on these properties and they've got to recoup their costs. So we're definitely seeing it all across the board. Housing is definitely the big one. Uh, food's another one. Uh, transport, another one. So, you know, if you've got to take the bus or, or the go train or or taking planes or trains anywhere, it's definitely gone up. But housing is definitely the biggest one. So uh, on the other hand, uh, interest rates, everything going up, but also return on your investments is also going up. But one clearly not uh, balancing the other. No, definitely not. Yeah, the the stock market last year didn't do so well. Um, so far, we're off to a good start this year. But interest rates, so if you've got money sitting in GICs or cash accounts, they've definitely paid a lot more. But again, when you're looking at the inflation numbers, inflation being um, close to 6, 6.5%, I think in December it was 63 um, And if your rates of return on your investment are less than that, so you're not keeping up with inflation. So again, you're going to feel that pinch, whether it's in retirement or, or if you're or if you're just starting out, you're feeling that pinch on a daily basis. So yeah, your savings, if you're looking at, you know, if you're retired today and you're thinking I'm 65 and I've got enough money um, and I'll just stick my money into a GIC, well, your erosion of capital is going to happen fairly quickly because you're not keeping up to inflation. And that's where you've got to look at a, a detailed financial plan and go through what what investments make the most sense for you, whether it's the stock market or GICs or bonds or or real estate for that matter. So I'm reading a thing now, 1.7 million needed to retire up to, up 20% compared to 2020. Um, is, is that set in stone now or will that level out? What are your thoughts? <laughs> yeah, I think that number is just something a pie in the sky or something that people just get in their heads. So I, I ran some quick numbers and if you're 65 today and you had a million dollars in your, in your RSPs, it would, it was, it would generate about $50,000 a year in income if you were to live till age 90, or sorry, live to age 95. That same money, if, you, if you're 35 years old today, and get a load of this number, if you're 35 years old today and you want to retire at 65, that same 50000 that you want to spit out as an income on an annual basis, you'd have to have $3.2 million. And so mm. that number 1.7, it depends, I guess, what age you're at. If you're, if you're in your forties, maybe that's closer to what it is. But if you're in your 30, if you're 35, that number's three, over 3 million that you need to have. Um, so it's all relative to what you need to live off of. And that's, that's one of the things in the article that we were talking about is the article states, you know, you, it's a personal figure. What do you need? Uh, go through a budget. Mm. What do you need to live off? Do you need $50,000 a year? Do you have CPP coming in? Do you have OAS coming in? Do you have a company pension coming coming in? Um, are your expenses going to be the same in retirement? Are they going to be more? You know, every day is a weekend in retirement. So we say that on the show mm. all the time that a lot of people spend more money in retirement than they did when they were working because every day is a weekend. You got nothing to do. So you might as well do something and it costs money to do that. So yeah, it's definitely uh, that number, that 1.7 million, I guess it's realistic to, a, to an extent, but um, everyone's different is I guess the big point here. Which is why you need a financial planner. Jay Llewellyn with us, Senior Financial <laughs> Consultant with Fox Group, IG Private Wealth Management, and of course, planning your financial future every Saturday morning right here on CHM. Jay, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. 
Thank you. Appreciate it. Let's bring in Matthew Light, Associate Professor of Criminology, Sociological Studies, uh, Center for European, Russian and Eurasian Studies at the University of Toronto and talk about uh, where Ukraine and Russia are, is and uh, even if it's got a comment on a balloon. Let's bring in Matthew Light. Matthew, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. Thanks. Great to be with you. Matthew, just before we get to Russia and Ukraine, any comment on what we've seen in regard to the China surveillance balloon? Uh, why is that happening now? Is there any correlation with a conflict between Ukraine and Russia? Are we distracted? What are your thoughts? Um, that's a great question. I I think it's it's too early to tell. Um, it, it is interesting that that has occurred just as the conflict with Ukraine and Russia is um, heating up, but it's not obvious to me what the correlation is, if any. So I probably should uh, let others weigh in on that. Uh, you said things are heating up. We heard that there was going to be a winter offensive, that uh, Russia was building up troops and such. What do we know about casualties on both sides? How much have have has each country paid in, in terms of lives lost uh, as far as soldiers? Do we have those numbers or any accurate numbers at all? We only have estimates um, that have been prepared in the case of the Russian casualties by the Ukrainian government and in the case of Ukrainian casualties um, by other sources. Uh, neither government has actually released uh, reliable casualty figures. Um, the Ukrainians uh, say as a matter of policy that they're not going to do that. Uh, the Russians have released figures that are not very credible. So what we know is that on the Russian side, well over 100,000 people have died um, in the year of fighting since February. So. Um, one figure that's cited is 130. I've seen figures as high as 180,000. On the Ukrainian side, the figures are believed to be much less, but um, a number of 70 to 80,000, uh, even maybe um, might 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 be um, in the ballpark. Um, bearing in mind that Ukraine has a significantly smaller population, that's still a very heavy um, load of mortality for that society to bear. Um, nonetheless, the Russians have been pressing ahead with their plans to vastly increase the number of troops that are available for their activities in uh, Ukraine. Um, and we are now told that there are actually substantially more troops, uh, Russian troops in Ukraine than shortly after the invasion. So if anything, they've actually been augmenting uh, the size of their occupying army. Uh, as we approach the one-year anniversary of this Russian invasion of Ukraine, um, what's the fallout at home? How different is it one year? Uh, uh, how, how different is it from Russian fallout or response from the citizenry at home now as compared to a year ago? Well, um, I think we could say that um, the awareness has seeped into the Russian public that the war is a slog. Um, even if they don't think it's been lost yet, they certainly know that it has not been won. And although the casualty figures um, that the Russian government supplies are not made public, um, it's not a secret that, that they're extensive. What the Russian government has going for it is that it has largely managed to mobilize uh, people who are from less politically influential sectors of society. So people from um, remote regions, particularly those inhabited by non-Russians or people from more poor working class origins and has avoided um, drafting a lot of people from the urban middle and upper middle class in major cities like Moscow. And so the consequence for them of that is that it releases or reduces the pressure on them politically. Uh, it means that the people who are most politically engaged are the ones who are least likely to be bearing the cost of this conflict. Um, of course, the Russian strategy is not uh, unique in that case, um, in that sense. Other countries have 
done similar things over the history of warfare. But that may be helping to explain why, um, even though the war has been going on for nearly a year now, we don't see uh, sort of mass protests against it. Um, another factor to bear in mind is that by some estimates, around a million people have left Russia. Um, some of them are men who are afraid of being drafted. Uh, others are simply um, educated professionals of a more liberal bent who don't want to be, um, who don't see a future for themselves in the kind of Russia that's emerging during the war, which is a more authoritarian, repressive place. So it's also possible that, to some extent, that outflow of uh, potential war opponents has sort of reduced the potential for more active opposition to emerge within Russian society. Matthew Light with us, Associate Professor of Criminology, Sociological Studies, uh, Center for European, Russian, and Eurasian Studies, University of Toronto. Hard to believe we're, all, we're approaching a year of the Russian invasion of Ukraine, and it just shows no signs of slowing down at this point. Matthew, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Thank you. Bye now. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Uh, I want to bring in Ian Large, Executive Vice President of Leger for Alberta. Fascinating discussion uh, that's been had a lot across this country. Uh, and I guess started with uh, Pierre Paul Evra and his, uh, his line that Canada's broken or seems broken or feels like it's broken. Uh, and Leger threw that out there to see what Canadians think about that line and ian large executive vice president of leger alberta is with us now ian thanks for the time hope you're well i'm very well thank you scott thank you for uh, thank you for your interest so uh, this is fascinating because it came out of the uh, polyevra camp um and and you know many well i'll leave it at that what is the results what are what are what are canadians thinking about this line and and if canada's broken or not well it was actually uh remarkably a remarkable level of agreement. So 67%, so two-thirds of Canadians agreed that uh, it feels like everything is broken in the country right now. And and we haven't – I don't think I've ever seen numbers that that uh, that uh, unhappy, if you like. Uh, even in the depths of COVID, uh, we didn't see numbers like this. So, so there's clearly a, an enormous – uh, level of agreement with this idea that, you know, maybe uh, maybe Pierre Polyev has uh, uh, got onto a thread. Uh, are opinions of Canadians changing? And I think, uh, Ian, you just have to look at the discussion that's going on today in regard to health care to show just how much Canadians' opinions have changed uh, in a post-pandemic world. Absolutely. Oh, absolutely, Scott, because the part of it is uh, at the top of the list of issues that are of concern to Canadians today. It's it's uh, uh, inflation and rising costs and interest rates. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, 68 percent of Canadians put that in their in their, you know, the top of their list or in in, uh, in a bucket of a uh, bundle of things at the top of their list. And that uh, so you can appreciate a year ago or three years ago, never would have seen that. I mean, the idea that that inflation and interest rates have just dominating the conversation and right behind it as you're pointing out about what the conversation is in Ottawa is healthcare 59% of Canadians put that in the top of their list and healthcare's always been kind of near the top when we've asked these questions but it's not nearly as powerfully uh, or nearly as critically important to Canadians as we're seeing it today 
Many have said over uh, of late that the the prime minister has been off base on which those ki- on what those kitchen table issues are for Canadians, as you said, inflation, housing, affordability, interest rates, uh, most economic related. However, the prime minister seems to be changing his tone, and the party seems to be changing its position. Um, is that going to change things? Do you think, or are, are these real results uh, 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 of what people are really feeling? I, th- I think the real results I mean, polling, as you know, is just a, it's a snapshot in time. So things can mm-hmm. change. Uh, I think we've caught on to a, 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 a concern, a high, a very high level of concern at the moment. Things could change. Obviously, certainly the state of the conversation uh, in Ottawa today about healthcare might change the, might change the conversation. Although, you know, as you pointed out, I mean, just a few billion dollars here or there might not make a difference. But those issues about affordability, uh, rising costs, uh, jobs in the economy, those are very those those touch people at home. And what I think I found particularly interesting in the res, in the results is uh, for the federal government, only 13 percent of Canadians say that aff- affording a place to live is is one of their priorities. And uh, for for uh, Canadians, it's 30 percent. 25% think that hmm. that affording finding a place to live. So so there is still although we're talking healthcare today there's and there's been lots of conversations about rising costs and inflation and, and interest rates to some extent, I think the federal government is still out of touch with what Canadians are trying to say. What I also thought was fascinating in all of this as well is women are agreeing that it is broken as opposed to just men and all of it as well, the younger age brackets as well. Yeah, because for the younger people especially, they're facing kind of a, a multiple whammy of of cost of finding places to live, affordable housing, uh, softening job markets, uh, no, um, you know, virtually no wage growth uh, over the past couple of years, uh, overcrowding, and and you know, in the in the in the GTA. You know, how much does it cost to find a place to live now? And so for young people, if you're coming out of university or out of college or starting your career, those are real issues that that affect you. Healthcare, um, you know, that's probably something we save for when we get older as a, as a real concern. Uh, and you're right that for women, stereotypically, it's been sort of the hearth and home question for them. This is for for women. It's all of the above. All of these issues are mm. are are hitting them in a way that's uh, that's generating real concern. We've only got a few seconds left, Ian. Uh, any thoughts on to why all of a sudden they feel this way now? Why they feel it is broken now? What's changed? <laughs> well, I think it, it's related to the pandemic. Personally, I think we we spent three years talking about a single topic, and so these things were probably already there, but they've just sort of been able to trickle to the to the or come up to the surface now that the pandemic is mm. mostly behind us. Ian Large with us, Executive Vice President of Alberta for Leger and Canadians. Do they think it's broken? The country, that is. And the majority saying yes. Ian, thanks for the time. Be well. Thank you very much, Scott. Have a great afternoon. If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer, he'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. It's 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson, Hamilton Today. Let's get an update on the balloon and um, and <laughs> and why we didn't find out about it, meaning can- Canadians, until it was over Man- uh, Montana and the U.S. was covering it. Because it appears that it came down through Alaska 
Alaska, into the Northwest Territories, through British Columbia, through Alberta, and then through Saskatchewan to Montana. Were you aware of that? Let's bring in Christian Leprec, professor of both the Royal Military College of Canada, Queen's University, and a fellow at the McDonald laurie Institute, and is with us now. Christian, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Yes, Scott. Lovely day. Thanks for having me. So are you surprised, Christian, that we didn't find out anything about this, at least Canadians, until it was reported in the U.S. media over Montana when it had already been across the territories in three provinces? Uh, yeah, so I think this hints at a few things. One is that uh, Canada would have likely found out, but would have found out likely through NORAD and through U.S. detection rather than Canadian detection, because the Americans have pointed out that they failed to detect previous intrusions, both by balloons uh, and other types of intrusions around sensitive military sites and, uh, and military training exercises by the Chinese. So the second is that uh, what we don't know is, was this really an unintentional balloon that just kind of drifted off? Or was this, in effect, as you suggest here, a probing of our air defenses? So will we actually detect it? When will we detect it? And also probing of how will countries react? Um, in our case, for instance, uh, we don't have, it appears we don't have the technology to currently detect these balloons over our own airspace. We have to rely on the Americans. We don't have any technology to intercept it, um, uh, given that the Americans scrambled the F-22 Raptor, uh, which we don't have and which is not for sale. But we also don't seem to have any particular interest in defending our interests. The government of Canada made no statement compared to the US, where Anthony Blinken went on clear record as this being a violation of U.S. sovereignty and of international law. And uh, the Canadians, uh, the foreign affairs minister called in the Chinese ambassador and I guess wagged the finger and said, oh, we really don't like it. Please don't do that again. You know, this doesn't look to me like a very forceful uh, way of uh, standing up to the Chinese, given the way the Chinese regime and the Chinese leader humiliated our prime minister at the recent meeting in Bali, which showed clear contempt for this country and this country's leadership. Is this an embarrassment for Canada? Because, again, I, I remember watching last night or the other night because uh, it was quite a curious story, a bizarre story. And, I mean, they showed like a little route coming out of Saskatchewan. And, well, where did it come? My first question is, where did it come from? How did it get there? And it was all it was literally front page news for the whole weekend. Yet nobody's aware that it went across three pro or three provinces in a territory in Canada. And, and nobody seemed to care. Uh, yeah, and it appears also the government of Canada didn't really let Canadians know. Uh, that no. it was only once it entered U.S. airspace that the U.S. government made an announcement. So clearly, the government of Canada, uh, as is so often the case when it comes to the China fi file uh, here, you know, leading from behind or not even leading in this case, really just kind of drafting behind the Americans and hoping they will basically sort out what ultimately is our problem. And I think if nothing else, it should be a reminder to Canadians to the extent to which our adversaries are probing our airspace. And I mean, it's not just about balloons here, right? So we have all sorts of uh, unmanned vehicles that are entering our airspace. Uh, uh, think about, of course, the potential for intercontinental ballistic missiles, but also Russia and China now having hypersonic missiles. And we've also had both Russia and China intrude into our sovereign territory uh, underwater with unmanned underwater vehicles. Um, and so uh, this, so, so the balloon is just one indication of a whole host of ways that our adversaries are probing our defenses, are violating our sovereignty. Uh, and it appears that the federal government is entirely unfazed by all this.
Uh, do we know how many balloons there were or are? I mean, we had heard initially there was another one over Latin America, then that wasn't confirmed. Do we know anything more about this? Yeah, so uh, we know that what we know now in retrospect that there were at least three other balloons during the time of the Trump administration. Uh, those were not identified even by U.S. intelligence as balloons at the time. Um, so this was probably also a signaling effort by the U.S. that it now has the capacity to detect uh, these types of uh, objects as they enter our airspace and also a signaling effort by the U.S., uh, by shooting it down to show that the U.S. will not tolerate uh, this type of balloon in the future and would likely shoot it down before it ever makes its way um, uh, to the continental airspace. But uh, that would ultimately mean sort of some coordination with Canada. Uh, and if Canada won't even make a statement on it, uh, I think uh, it, Washington will be a little surprised to learn to the extent to which uh, Canada doesn't even appear to be cooperating uh, in trying to defend the continent together, which of course has been our fundamental strategy for stability and prosperity um, and what's made us arguably the, the wealthiest, most stable, most desirable continent history has ever known by getting together in World War II and saying we're going to defend this continent together against threats from offshore. Uh, the U.S. Prime Minister Biden uh, has a State of the Union address tonight. Will this be a part of it? Yeah, I think this was keeping the balloon up was certainly also a PR effort. Uh, somebody very smart uh, in communications, either in the Department of Defense or in the White House, realized that uh, the balloon itself was going to be page three, four, five news. Uh, but uh, it once Anthony Blinken, uh, the U.S. Secretary of Defense, canceled his visit to China, that at that point it would become front page news and that this would be a way to draw the world's attention uh, to both China's efforts at spying as well as Chinese technology technology that is being deployed to spy. And I think ahead of the State of the Union address, where, of course, there's a lot of continuity between the Trump administration, the Biden administration on the course that they are taking on China, I think this will provide further opportunity for um, uh, for President Biden to double down uh, on his China strategy, because, of course, Republicans would like to use this uh, as a wedge issue uh, in uh, upcoming elections. Um, and so I think uh, we'll, we'll hear a whole lot about China uh, in the speech. Uh, China reaction to this balloon being shot down, do they care? Yeah, they seem to care a whole lot, actually. Um, given that the narrative shifted every day for about five days in a row, mm. um, and uh, the Chinese didn't pull out the nationalist card the way they had done previously when it came, for instance, to Nancy Pelosi's visits to Taiwan. Uh, so it seems that the Chinese are trying to keep this at sort of more of like a, a humorous type of level. And it suggests that on the one hand, it's embarrassing for China. And on the other hand, um, as China is relaunching its economy, this relationship with the U.S. is really important for China as China cuts, as the U.S. cuts China out of an increasing number of sort of economic sort of relationships with the U.S. And so uh, I think uh, the Chinese, this sort of got out of hand. Either somebody didn't know what they were doing or somebody wasn't coordinating properly uh, because I would say the Chinese reaction even to shooting down the balloon has been surprisingly subdued compared to the way they have reacted to other uh, comparable incidents. Christian Leprac with us, professor at both the Royal Military College of Canada and Queen's University and fellow at the Macdonald Laurier Institute. Christian, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. My pleasure. Have a lovely afternoon. 
You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. All right, lots of uh, chatter about the meeting between the provinces and uh, the prime minister today in regard to health care. Initially, uh, the government, or sorry, the provinces wanting an extra $28 billion uh, a year. Uh, they have got $4.6 billion over uh, the year, so obviously they are disappointed. Um, certainly not the optimism that they went into uh, the meetings with. The good news is uh, the federal government has agreed to uh, beef up uh, the amount of money they pay every year over the next five years. Um, but again, we could be talking about a completely different government in a couple of years from now. So um, obviously, but not putting the money uh, up front. About a quarter of this $196 billion over 10 years is, um, is new money. So where do we go from here? Uh, I guess it's just great that they're all meeting and talking about it. Let's bring in Peter Gray, professor of political science, McMaster University. He is with us now. Peter, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. I am, thanks. So your thoughts on all the hype leading up to this meeting? It's taken two and a half years to get. Uh, they finally get it. Uh, we hear initially they're not very happy. They wanted more than uh, what they're getting. I guess that's to be expected. Uh, you always want more. But your thoughts of where we are and the fact that this meeting even took place? Yeah, I mean, I guess as we get closer and closer to budget season, uh, the numbers get more and more precise. And, uh, you know, it uh, it does look like, as you say, there's a lot of disappointed provinces on the one hand. But on the other hand, uh, they're happy to have the money rather than having to go and, yeah. you know, raise their own provincial taxes to, to pay for their health care systems. And so uh, and they're probably also happy to see a, a 10 year horizon on this transfer. Uh, you know, with with a, a rising trend in terms of the amount of money that's being uh, sent to the provinces. Um, so, I mean, for those reasons, I suspect uh, they'll kind of uh, grin and bear it. And, you know, we'll see ultimately uh, what comes out of the promised bilateral agreements between the federal and uh, provincial governments in terms of how this money is tied to, uh, you know, the provincial health priorities. Uh, we've got obviously a, uh, a federal government that's been in there for, for many years now, uh, three years over the global pandemic that they've been talking about this meeting and such, say two and a half years. Uh, this is spread out over 10 years. Is that pushing it down the road, considering there's a good chance that perhaps this party isn't even in power after the next election? Yeah, I mean, that's a risk that the provinces, you know, face. Um, you know, we do have the precedent in 2004 of there being a 10-year deal. Uh, you know, under the Martin Liberals. And when Stephen Harper's Conservatives came in, they honoured that agreement uh, through to, you know, its end in 2014, at which point they put in place, you know, a new uh, and less uh, generous uh, funding deal to the provinces, which uh, Trudeau then more or less continued after that. So, I mean, I think for the provinces, there is always that uh, danger that there will be a change of government. Uh, but I think they also recognise the importance that healthcare uh, holds for Canadians uh, you know, provincial governments more than any understand, you know, how the electorate really pushes them on that at election time. And so feel that there'd be a pretty big cost for a federal government that was to uh, walk away from this province, uh, particularly since, you know, while it does involve an increase in funding for health care, it's not, uh, you know, it's not such a generous offer that a future government could say that it was, you know, mistaken uh, to pour right. all that money in that manner. 
Good point. Um, uh, has Canada's, have Canadians, their opinions of, of their health care system changed? Is this a turning point uh, with these discussions that we're now having? We're hearing things like um, can't put good money after bad, need reforms, need accountability. Things have to change. Are we at a turning point here? Uh, probably not. <laughs> I mean, a lot of the, at least at, at the level of the, at the federal provincial kind of relationship, those kinds of stories of the federal government saying, you know, we need accountability, we need things to change. You know, again, we could go back to 2004, 2003, and it was, it was the same story. And they claim they got things in those deals, and they, they probably did. But, uh, you know, a lot of what they're asking for are things that the provinces probably want to do themselves and may get pushed in that direction in terms of, you know, improving uh, the sort of uh, information systems around the around healthcare, uh, in particular, or, or you know, investing more in mental health uh, and the like. So, I mean, I don't think that's pushing a lot at the level of the population. I think there is a sense that uh, the Canadian healthcare system is not performing that well, and in that way, mm-hmm. Canadian citizens are actually consistent with what the international evidence is showing. And so, you know, we are at a point as we come out of the pandemic, and where there maybe is a bit more uh, money in the system. Uh, where provincial governments may get pushed more by their citizens to show better results. And so we'll see, I guess, as we get into upcoming provincial elections in the next four or five years, to what extent citizens are really demanding, not just that, you know, the system kind of works, but that, that it's changing in ways to make healthcare work better for Canadians. It seemed that for the longest time we were just so proud of it, we didn't even want to talk about changing it or reforming it or altering it in any way. Uh, now that's obviously changed. Uh, people's perception of uh, of the system uh, has changed. Has this change come from politicians or Canadians just realizing it's broken and now demanding more of the politicians? Well, I think in many ways they're demanding more. I mean, our healthcare system changes too, right? I mean, we go back to the the, the formation of it in the 1960s, and you didn't have these like life changing surgeries, like a cataract surgery yeah. that could allow you to see into old age or new hips and knees mm-hmm. and so on. So, you know, the way we live is different. The demands we make on the healthcare system is different. The way healthcare is delivered, with so much more of it through, you know, drugs and things that can be consumed at home, is has changed. So, yeah, I mean, I think. We have a system that was put into place now, you know, 60 years ago, um, and ultimately, the uh, way healthcare is delivered and the way we live has changed. And so, yeah, there needs to be those kinds of transformations. And I think Canadians see that they aren't necessarily getting it, whether it's at sort of the front line uh, of, you know, emergency care, uh, but also in a number of other ways. But at the same time, Canadians are, I think, happy with the basic idea of a public healthcare system. And so they're wary of a system that's going to change in a way uh, where they can't get you know, access to quality health care uh, because they aren't properly insured or, you know, they, they, they don't have the same kind of quality of employer health benefits as their neighbor. So there, there's a number of ways in which, you know, they want change, but also uh, I think there's a strong sense that there's a bottom line that can't change. Is the discussion debate between public versus private or the Canadian system versus the American system, has that run its course? I mean, um, again, we, we, we need to change the way we do things, as you've just expressed, but we still keep hearing these same old arguments whenever the discussion comes up. Is it time to put that to rest and move on? Because that seems sort of outdated now. Well, I think to just frame it around that is limited, but I mean, you know, there are differences between public and private health care in terms of how things cost. And if we look even beyond the United States, this is a 
important you know set of discussions uh, in Europe and elsewhere in terms of how you you manage the public and the private parts of a healthcare system. But I do think that just comparing ourselves with the United States is a is a limitation because uh, you know that's a very you know that's an outlier if you like in uh, developed countries in terms of how it does health. And so we might do better to you know think about solutions that are working uh, in different parts of Europe and and ways of you know managing uh, the public private uh, interface uh, in a way that's maybe a bit different than we've done. Again, even in the international context, the way Canada does it is pretty uh, unique in uh, you know in global perspective. Peter Grant with us, professor of political science, McMaster University, talking about changes to the healthcare system. Peter, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. And you too. All right. Uh, Prime Minister and the Premier's uh, meeting today, very much anticipated uh, health care meetings that they've been uh, working on for, I guess, uh, two and a half to three years. They've been trying to uh, get together. Obviously, now it has happened. And uh, what we know so far, uh, $196 billion over 10 years, $46 billion of that is new. Uh, the rest already accounted for uh, a $2 billion top-up. Uh, immediately and over the next five years, 5% increase. What the provinces are not happy about is they were hoping to get, I think, about 28 billion, uh, annually to, to catch up to where they were. I think they got about 4.6. So, uh, as Canadians are being surveyed and we're hearing more and more about, they don't really care where it comes from, the province or the feds or whatever. They just want to make sure that their healthcare system works, uh, as well as, uh, is obviously universal. Uh, to talk more about the impact on the economy, what this all means, let's bring in Michael Veal, professor, economics, McMaster, University Academic Director, Stats Canada Research Data Centre, and with us now. Michael, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Yes, I am. Hope you are too. So your thoughts on what we're hearing and the discussions that are going on today, uh, obviously Canadians don't care where it comes from. How much of, uh, of an impact do discussions like this have on our economy? How big of a ding do we take when we announce big ticket items like this? Well, this is serious money. So right now, the federal government already transfers about $1,000, actually more like 1250 for every Canadian to the provinces for health care. Uh, you know, so that's, uh, that is a significant amount of money. Uh, and by and large, health care for every Canadian costs approximately $6,000 mm. uh, to the federal government. So, you know, that's for a family of four. That's $25,000 a year. That's, again, serious money. Uh, and so they are talking about big things, and I don't think we should be surprised that, that it doesn't go smoothly. Uh, your thoughts on this round of talks, is it different now? Are we at a turning point here, Michael? I think that's really hard to assess. Uh, I I don't think we are yet. I think this is more than likely going to be at best, a Band-Aid measure. Uh, I think that they haven't really come to a fundamental agreement. Part of the problem, of course, is going back to the basics, is that the health care is a provincial responsibility, and the federal government gives a fair chunk of money, uh, but they haven't quite sorted out how to deal with this in, a, in an environment where there's this sort of shared responsibility and sort of totally provincial responsibility. Uh, dental care, pharma care, national daycare programs, those are all provincial programs as well. Are we heading for the same train wreck with these programs as we are with healthcare? Um, do we need to find a different way of doing this? Well, I mean, in some sense, the basic problem isn't really a problem in that 
Well, one of the reasons the healthcare has gotten so much more expensive is because there are so many more treatments and so many more ways to uh, mm-hmm. give people longer and more fulfilling lives uh, through better, better medical care. Uh, the trouble is of cost and how to, how to cover that. Um, it does not make, to me, a great deal of sense that all our public health care dollars are so concentrated on hospitalization and physician services, and that some of these other services you mentioned um, are not covered. Uh, but the only way we get there is if there is some sort of consensus that eventually is going to have some taxpayers paying more money. And of course, there's only one taxpayer, but the provinces would like that tax pay- payment to be go through the federal government so that they don't have to right. carry the blame for it. And the federal government wants to make sure the provinces uh, pay their share as well. Has the public opinion changed on that topic, on that issue? Um, you know, Canadians tired of provinces and the feds arguing about who does what, who controls what. Um, Canadians are now realizing that their much uh, prided healthcare system is not what they thought it was. How does that change the negotiation and the policy that politicians come up with? Because it seems, you know, the public versus private, the Canadian versus U.S., it seems those arguments have grown old. Yeah, I think we're still in the squabble stage, unfortunately. Uh, I think we can get beyond that, but I don't think we're there yet. How do we get there? Is this, where do we go from here then, Michael? Well, I think one of the things is we have to to accept that if healthcare is going to increase the cost of healthcare is going to uh, continue to grow at faster than the rate of, of total incomes. Uh, that means either we have to have some measure of privatization and private expenditure, or we have to increase taxes. And I, I don't think we're at a national consensus as to which of those two ways we want to go. But if we just try to hold the line and keep taxes the same, uh, then, then unfortunately, we're going to bump up against that constraint. Already, uh, healthcare is pretty close to half a provincial budget. Uh, and so they just don't have a lot more, more money there. That's why they either have to increase taxes or get more money from the federal government. But if the federal government puts in a lot more, then they have to increase taxes. Um, this certainly isn't a new problem, Michael. We've been talking about this for decades, it seems. Why are we talking about it now? I think I think you're right. I think we just have been talking about it for decades, and we're 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 moving towards uh, the solution. I think at some some people's perspective would be that the health system is pretty close to crisis now. Uh, certainly during the pandemic, it was a crisis, uh, and it's revealed a lot of the a lot of the problems. And most of the problems are problems that, at least in part, are going to have to be solved with more money. So to take an example. We know that there's a big problem with the bed blockers. People in hospitals should be moved into long-term care, but we have to provide the long-term care spots. How are we going to get those? Um, Well, part of the answer is going to be more public dollars. Uh, That being said, uh, if you're the average taxpayer, uh, does it make any difference to you if this expense comes out of your provincial levy or your federal levy or what have you? Because I'm guessing Canadians think at the end, for them, it's it's all going to come out in the wash as even. For them, yeah, that's a good. That's a good point. That's exactly right. Uh, as I said, the question is: uh, neither the federal government nor the provincial government want to be in the position of increasing taxes a lot because then they get the blame. Oh, uh, again, we've had the discussion versus private, uh, public versus private. It seems to me this discussion is if you're not going to reform in some way that greatly changes the system, if you want to keep the system the old way, the way that it is, the only way to do that is to just keep adding more bodies and more money into the old system, and there's no guarantee that that will make things more efficient. 
I think that's absolutely right. Uh, but on the other hand, uh, for a long time, privatization has been the so-called third rail of, of Canadian politics. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so uh, at some level, you know, I have to be very sympathetic to the the politicians involved here. They're, they have a really tough problem. Healthcare is yeah. very expensive. Nobody wants taxes increased. Nobody really wants privatization. But have we come, somehow have we come to the realization? Have we come to the realization, Michael, that this is going to be a combination? It's not going to be one extreme or the other. It's a combination of the two. I think that's that's probably right. Uh, but at the same time, uh, most politicians will find the choices that are out there uh, hmm. not very not very great for them. Right? They they really would like to yeah. somehow to be able to carry it through uh, with the existing. Uh, process, but it's it doesn't look like that's going to work. Michael Beal with us, Professor of Economics, McMaster University, Academic Director, Stats Canada Research Data Center, talking about our changing healthcare system. Michael, thank you for the time. Be well. You too. Thanks very much. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Let's bring in Scott Radley, host of the Scott Radley Show. You can read him in your Hamilton Spectator coming up after the 6 o'clock news. He is with us now. Scott, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Follow something up from yesterday, though, Scott, if I can. Yeah, go ahead. I had mentioned that someone who uses this studio is deaf and puts the headphones, and we thought it was Roy Green. (laughs) No, no, it's Rick Zamperin. I don't think Roy's been in, and these headphones... I tell you, so when you talk to Rick, when people call in to talk to Rick in the morning, talk very slowly and very loud. <laughs> See, it's, it's, it's affecting him. He's a younger guy. It's already affecting him. I've been doing it 40 years. I'm tone deaf, man. I can't hear anything. <laughs> there you go. All the, uh, you know, when I'm going back and forth on the intercom with the producers, they're like, can you turn your thing down? Cause I'll keep getting his feedback. It's like, sorry, I can't even, did you say something? <laughs> so yeah, I, I, so he was, he, he was listening and, and obviously called you out on that. There there you go. Well, Roy Green has like a stack of Marshall amps for his headphones. It's like going to a you know a heavy metal show. It's true. It's, it's true. Uh, unbelievable. Yep. Yep. All right. So a very excited, very happy. Although it might be a little anticlimactic, the meeting between the prime minister and uh, the premiers on healthcare. The premiers, of course, have been asking this for two and a half years. Finally, it happens. Um, there's a presentation made. Of course, the the premiers um, say that it's not enough. But I, I think what's important here is that whatever politicians do, they're reacting to what the public is saying. The, the public is con- is now controlling uh, this discussion, and we've seen poll after poll after poll that Canadians finally realize their system's broken, uh, broken that it needs to change, and they don't give it a rat's rear end where the money comes from the province or the feds as long as it, um, you know, as long as it gets fixed. I've been asking guests if this is a turning point. Many have said the doctors and the government not so much, but I think that's is very much a turning point for Canadians and how they feel about their health care. Do you agree? Maybe. And I'll tell you why I say maybe. Uh, there was a story on CTV News that was out uh, January the 30th of this year. The federal government failed to spend tens of billions of dollars in the last fiscal year on promised programs and services. $38 billion of promised spending never got spent. Now, on Mm. the one hand, the fiscal conservative in me says, that's great. No use squandering more money. The other side of me, though, says, okay, it's great to show up at one of these meetings and say, oh, we're going to throw all this extra money at it. 
let's see the money actually go at it. What, what are the catches? Mm. What are the, th- let's see that actually flow into the system. And then we can talk about whether it's making a difference. And so is it, is it, is this a turning point uh, based on the handshake between Danielle Smith and the prime minister? I don't know if you've seen mm. the video of this, the, the no. premier of Alberta. Oh, look up that, just go on anywhere on online. Was the, there a hand buzzer involved here when it was happened? No, it was the coldest, most unwarm, that's the same as coldest, I guess, uh, hand, <laughs> handshake. It was, uh, she cannot stand the man, and I think she reflects most everybody out west. Um, anyway, we will see. We will see if this money comes. We will see what the small print says about what the rules and restrictions are. Remember, I mean, some things we've seen before that the federal government says, we'll give you money, but you must. Okay, uh, what is that? And, and I, you know, I don't know that, when was the meeting? Three hours ago, four hours ago? Yeah. I don't think that anybody's had time to look through all the small print mm. yet. So let's see. Let's see. I'll tell you what I'm tired of, and that's whenever we try to have a discussion about Canadian health care or reform or changing the system or making it better, it used to be everybody, no, 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 it's perfect. We got the best system in the world. Don't you well, dare touch yeah, it. Yeah, of course. And, and that obviously has completely changed. So I'm hoping we can now put a rest to the debate of Canadian health care versus the U.S. health care, uh, public system versus a private system. This argument, this debate, is archaic. It is so old school. It is unbelievable. Well, Considering it Scott, how's already, it worked? Well, that's it. We've already got a combination of the system right now, and that's obviously what Canadians are looking for. They don't give a damn if it comes from the province or the feds or whoever, but I'm hoping now we can put this extremist discussion to the side. But we can't. When, when every time Scott, we compare we it to, it's like public versus private. We it's can't. like American versus U.S. We have to. You know why? But we because won't. Our, yeah, but wait, wait, Scott, because that's not accurate. It's not what we have. We already have a combination of the two. So we don't have what people think we have. I understand that. And they that. saw that during the pandemic. I understand that. But we've already got the leader of the opposition or the, the, uh, the assistant prime minister, Jagmeet Singh, saying there will be no pro- pro- uh, private sector health care. We will yeah, fight this. And, and I agree with you. There's already some there. But we have this position in our mind that we have this entirely public, entirely socialist system. That's which, dumb. But but if we have already decided that this is the position we're starting from and he will support nothing and he's what's propping up this government, then who knows where we go with this. But I, I'm saying – and there are a lot of people. Scott, look, he's not the only one. There, are, You open your phone lines, and I know you have, and you will have people say, I will not stand for anything short of a public system. We believe – I think that – I think that – I think that segment of the population is declining, and they're declining rapidly because as soon as you investigate the business of what it takes to 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 uh, make health care available, we're, we're already doing it, and the socialist way just is – is not feasible. It, you know, people talk about Europe and whatever. It's a combination. It's a combination. And we, we, the idea, even if we were to go to the utopian view of 100% public, we already on a per capita basis, if we're not the highest country yeah. in yeah. medical spending, healthcare spending, we are right up there. And we've seen that our system is not working anywhere close to good enough. So what are we going to do? Double our healthcare spending? Yeah. Everyone's taxes yeah. go up by double now. And do you think that's going to, do you think money automatically fixes the problems? No, no, of course it doesn't, because if it did, we'd be the best healthcare system in the world without any question. There'd be no flaws, but we have lots. 
Scott Radley with us, host of the Scott Radley Show, coming up after the 6 o'clock news. You can read him in your Hamilton Spectator. As always, Scott, thanks for the time. Have a great show. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. That's it for us. Thanks for listening. As always, we leave it to you, the taxpaying customer, to have the last word. This is a message for everyone on Parliament Hill. Stop playing politics with our health care. You were elected to get it done. Just stop playing games and get it done. Done.